one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome back to Unheard. Overnight, a statement came out from the American Defense Department. And I quote, Today, the militaries of the United States and the United Kingdom, with support from Australia, Bahrain, Canada and the Netherlands, conducted strikes against military targets in Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen. This action is intended to disrupt and degrade the Houthis' capabilities to endanger mariners and threaten global trade in one of the world's most critical waterways. Statements like that will give many of us shivers the last few times that we've heard about Western military actions into Arab countries, whether it's Iraq and Afghanistan, Libya, even Syria, it hasn't ended as intended. In this emergency episode, we want to talk through what is actually going on, whether it's wise and what might happen next. And to help us do that, we are joined by Tom McTague, our very own political editor here at Unheard, who has been diving into some of the history of this part of the world for his excellent podcast, These Times, which I heartily recommend. So let's just talk about this part of the world. We've got a map of it here just to help us orient ourselves. It's one of the parts of the world that people know least about, mm. I would say, in the West. Uh, it sort of connects the Mediterranean European zone with the Indian Ocean and the routes to China and Asia. Give us a bit of a tour of the geography. So we have Yemen at the southern end of the Red Sea on the Arabian Peninsula, facing uh, into Africa, where there's currently a whole series of disputes over land and control. Uh, and this part of the world has actually been really important, although it's kind of unknown, it's been incredibly important to the West, and particularly for Britain, uh, for a good 150 years, 200 years now. So it started with... Um, British wrestling control of Aden, which is a city at the uh, at the southern end of uh, Yemen. And this was before the Suez Canal, which is up in the north of the Red Sea, connecting the Red Sea to the Mediterranean through Egypt, before that was even built. So we we took control of this part of the world to protect our trade routes into uh, into India, principally. Now, so we weren't going through the Suez Canal at that stage. We weren't going through. There the was Suez. no Suez Canal. No, there was no Suez Canal. So why was this an important trade route? It was back a then? it was a coaling station. So it was a it was a, a way of just protecting this whole area because we were going round the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa from Europe 
into India. And actually, the Suez Canal was built by the French as an attempt to try and undermine Britain's control of the sea routes to Asia. And so it was thought that they could uh, make a quicker route through in Britain uh, and they would be able to disrupt that and challenge Britain. What In the end, what happened is Britain dominated the, the new route uh, through the Red Sea and into the Mediterranean. Uh, and so it didn't have that effect. But then the Suez Canal became incredibly important to us. And it was our quickest route to India, which was the obviously the jewel in the empire. And this is still the case, right? We've been hearing on the TV recently in recent days about how that route from, say, China to Europe is dramatically shorter, dramatically more efficient than trying to go all the way around Africa. So suddenly this part of the world that, frankly, nobody in the West knows a lot about, very Mm. few people do, and probably don't care very much about, is suddenly of vital strategic importance because it affects the prices of what we're buying in the shops. That's exactly right. I I read um, that it takes 20 days longer to get from Asia to Europe by going round uh, South Africa uh, rather than through the Suez Canal. And that adds something like a million dollars to every uh, shipping container coming to to, to Europe. And so that, and that's just going to be passed on. That is just inflation. So that is the principal reason why we are interested in this. This, is, this means consumers in the West are going to pay more for their goods at a time when we are desperately trying to get inflation under control. So to, let's look at the map again. So we have Yemen, this country south of Saudi Arabia, uh, that, as you say, is across the Red Sea from Africa. On the African side, that's the Horn of Africa you see at the bottom of that map. That's Somalia. There's been basically chaos in that part of the world for some time. There's been a lot of pirates and Mm. that shipping route, as I understand it, has already been vulnerable for for a number of years because of Somali pirates. I haven't heard that much about that recently. I suppose there have been methods to keep that under control. But there's Djibouti, the port city right there uh, in the middle, and then Eritrea. Sudan has obviously had its own civil war. So it's a troubled part of the world on the African side as well. Um, On the Gulf side, tell us what's been happening in Yemen. Yemen has been split between North and South for a long time. Uh, And actually, it was united um, in the the 90s. And then it was disrupted very much uh, by the invasion of Iraq. Going back to your original point about how Western interventions have not gone well in this region. And it's at around this time that the Houthis, the uh, that uh, we are now taking military action against, have um, started started to rise. And really, we can trace the, the the modern history back to 2014, which is the beginning of the civil war in Yemen, uh, where which is the Houthis uh, launching a sort of insurrection against the official government. Um, uh, based in the south and being remarkably successful and getting all the way uh, to Aden at some point. The name Houthi is actually after their original leader. That's right, um, yeah. There was a guy called Al-Houthi who was the kind of, I guess, rebel leader of that particular yes. group. They're Zaidi Shias, aren't they? That's a particular branch of Shia Islam That's right. that they follow. And I think already in the 80s, 90s, he was beginning to be active. That's right. And I think it's passed on to his brother now who's uh, who's taking the lead. And the fact that they're Shia 
in our in most people's understanding means they're more likely to be aligned with Iran. That's right, and they are aligned uh, to Iran. Although I think, from all accounts, that is slightly overplayed, and that they are they are not the creation of Iran, but they have emerged and they have um, been supported by Iran. And the original action by the West was to try and block Iranian attempts to supply the Houthis um, through um, through the Gulf of Aden there. So this has been going since 2014, and Saudi Arabia launched a, um, a war to, against the Houthis to try and stop this in 2015. Can I just go back a little bit further? Yeah. First of all, to 2011, yeah. the Arab Spring. Right, yeah. Is that not when they, the, the first rebellion happened? Because that's when the former government fell. Yes. Um, yeah, another salutary reminder that moments that in the West everyone celebrates as uh, the inexorable march of progress are, don't always end so well. So the original government falls in 2011, 2014, this, this insurrection takes place. Basically, they've what, controlled parts or substantial parts of Yemen ever since? Absolutely. They now control 70% of the Yemeni population. So this is not, uh, they're, they're not rebels anymore. They are in control of most of Yemen, most of the population of Yemen. And there is now a, a sort of a ceasefire, which has almost legitimized them. Um, and so, yeah, this has been going on since 2014, the civil war. And this, we didn't accept this. This was something that we tried to stop. Uh, when I say we, I mean the West and the Saudi-led coalition uh, that, is, uh, that, that launched a war against them. As, um, it was Saudi Arabia, Egypt, UAE, Bahrain, and then supported by the UK and US. So this is an incredible, incredibly wealthy coalition with the, the, the most sort of high-tech military equipment, and yet they failed to defeat the Houthis. Now, I think that's, that is a warning to us today. And because it's, there is a kind of asymmetry to this war in that the Houthis can launch these attacks using very cheap uh, drones and other military uh, uh, equipment, and we respond with incredibly expensive missiles that cost millions of dollars or millions of pounds. Um, and so our war is much more expensive than their war, and that, I think, is part of the problem here. So that Saudi attack mm. or the intervention into the Yemeni civil war that ultimately failed yeah. and they withdrew and there's now, as you say, this ceasefire, was itself controversial. Yes. It's another reminder of these sort of shifting alliances and where the kind of received opinion tends to swap sides periodically because it was considered immoral. Yes. Because the Saudis were using weapons from the UK, from the US, they were causing a lot of civilian casualties inside Yemen. It was politically very controversial. And ultimately, we, as the West, US-led sort of bloc, didn't support Saudi to the end. Is that right? So we, we supported them in the beginning. And then the, the media pressure, the narrative became so uncomfortable that America pretty much abandoned them. That's right. Yeah. Under, uh, under Obama and then uh, later uh, under Biden. I mean, Trump, though, um, was a, 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 different, a different order. And I think this is, a, again, an interesting challenge uh, to those of us who, are, who, you know, who try to think about these issues. We would, we would think about uh, Obama and, and Biden as often painted as the kind of wiser heads in, in, in the Middle East. 
But on this on this story, you know, Biden uh, took the Houthis off the terror list, and now he's going to war against them. And Trump was obviously much more supportive of uh, the Saudi Arabian attempts to uh, to push back against the Houthis. So it's a very complicated history, and not one uh, that plays easily to conventional wisdom. It also challenges those of us, I think, maybe even all of us, who get anxious when we see a new military action because of the repeated failures of the past. Less isn't always less in that sense, that it looks like the disruption that came from the Arab Spring in 2011, then the failure to deal with the Houthi problem is, has led us to where we are now. Mm-hmm. So can you make the case that we should have been stronger earlier and then we wouldn't be in this position? Absolutely. But we, we, we're constantly pinging around uh, from trying to correct the mistakes of the last crisis. You know, I think the, 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 the failed war in, uh, in Afghanistan and the failed war in Iraq clearly played a part in how we uh, think about the wars that came afterwards, the Syrian civil war, and then, and then obviously this today. And this sense that what is the moral position that we need to take uh, was clear is clearly dominant during the Obama presidency and the, and the Biden presidency and the political pressure not to get involved uh, because the Saudis were a difficult partner. Um, but now we're doing the same job the Saudis tried to do. Mm. There's a crucial difference, isn't there, which I think you highlighted in a piece you wrote on her today, between a kind of interventionist neocon idea of a foreign adventure, which you could say both Iraq and Afghanistan became, Mm -hmm. which was imbued with this sense of fixing things, helping countries move towards democracy, all sorts of things that in retrospect seem incredibly naive and misplaced. Mm -hmm. There isn't much of that going on in this particular conflict. So so it is different from previous interventions. And it seems more hard-nosed and more aligned to pretty obvious self-interest. Absolutely. It's quite an interesting war in that it feels very old-fashioned in this respect. It feels like the kind of war that we might have launched in the sort of in the 19th century, uh, where we are just protecting our commercial interests. And it's very clear. But then that is a defensible position to take. This is a small, relatively small group who are armed with cheap weapons, uh, who are very poor, and they are managing to have an outsized influence on some of the wealthiest countries in the world, in Europe, in the United States, and of course in China, and by disrupting the trade that is going through this crucial part of the world. So that is something that is affecting all, all Western um, consumers. And so if that's not a reason to get involved to protect that, then then what is? What are we using our militaries for? I mean, that is the argument essentially that is being made internally in number 10 here in in Britain, but it's the same argument that'll be made in the United States. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It goes to this big question of who runs these parts of the world, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Because we've been used in the long kind of Pax Americana, as they call it, to the idea that America is the world's policeman. Awkward parts of the world that need to be kept in check will be basically dealt with by America. That is now looking shakier as America is clearly stretched and has multiple fronts. And there are other powers such as China, such as Russia, such as Iran, that are very keen to destabilize that. It's quite interesting that the list of nations taking part in this could have been 20 years ago, Yeah, really. I mean, it's. It, I read it out in the introduction there. It's a few Western countries, a couple of Gulf, very sympathetic nations, and then America and the UK. It's, yeah. It doesn't seem that different from the original Iraq coalition of the willing. Oh, absolutely. And you, you have to wonder at what point uh, in the US and the UK in particular, we will say, well, why are we pay, paying a disproportionate cost to keep these lanes open? Britain is certainly not the dominant commercial uh, trade uh, exporter or um, in Europe. That That is clearly uh, Germany. And the United States is actually not so invested in this particular trade route as Europe and China. So China is the great exporter of the world that uses this lane to export its goods into Europe, which is the, one of the principal ways in which it is becoming uh, one of the two superpowers in the world. Europe is dependent on this sea route to get its energy supplies in from the Middle East, both in terms of gas and uh, in oil, particularly after the the, the war in, in, in Russia. So, so where's China? So where's China? Why is China not on the list? I guess it would be quite unusual at this stage in our diplomatic yeah. relations to do a joint military adventure with China. But why is China not sorting this out? They're well, the ones surely, who are benefiting from Exactly. This. Surely that's what Donald Trump will say and those around him. They will say, once again, we're the schmucks. We're paying to keep open a sea lane that ultimately benefits China and Europe. 
So we're protecting Europe and keeping, we're paying the cost all the time uh, to enable others to get wealthy. That is presumably what those around Donald Trump will say. And of course, there is a kernel of truth to that. But the challenge for those in the United States who will take that view is, do you really want to allow China to start uh, policing the world's shipping lanes? That is this, this, the source, the fundamental source of your power. And so if we go back to the map and that country, Djibouti, that sits opposite Yemen, that Which now, is next to the Bab al-Mandeb Strait, there, yeah. that small port nation. Yeah, and in that small country, there are at least four powers who have military bases, So, just which just shows you um, how important Which this, countries? So they are the French, the Japanese, uh, the Chinese, and the Americans. Wow. So they're all, they're all there. Uh, we, ha- we now, actually, the, uh, Britain, we have a base in Oman and a base in Bahrain. So we actually, ironically, have, have moved back west of Suez, and this happened under the coalition. Um, so that's probably, I guess, why the UK is playing such a prominent role in this particular strike, because it has assets that are useful on that side of the Gulf. We have assets, and we've also built these two um, aircraft carriers. So all of these things are actually the decisions that were taken decades ago or started decades ago are now incredibly important because our other base is effectively Cyprus, uh, which is at the very north of this map. And that is effectively our giant aircraft carrier in the, uh, in the Mediterranean, which allows us to intervene in, in, in Iraq. But it's such a fascinating moment in this kind of evolving live history. We, every week we're documenting this so-called move to multipolarity, yep. the, the shift in the global world order. And yet, when the shit hits the fan, yep. it's the UK and the US leading a coalition of the willing, yep. as they talked about in 2003, sorting out a problem that affects almost the whole world. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a fascinating challenge for Britain as well, post-Brexit Britain, is why do we feel the need to be at the front of this, as what some people call like the tip of the spear on these uh, on, on these interventions. That is the role that we're playing in Ukraine. We are, we are the, the, the most forward-leaning of all the European countries, and that is the role that we're playing here. Now, when, when you put this to people inside number 10, they'll say, well, it's power. It's influence. You know that is the point of foreign policy. This is why we are. Um, this is why we remain influential. Um, but we're also quite poor at the moment, and there are other countries in Europe that are quite rich and who are who are benefiting from this, and they manage to remain rich without getting involved. There's also a big political cost hmm. because if we put the map back up, there's a country at the top of this map called Israel, and right next to it. Gaza and the West Bank that obviously are absolutely in the center of this because the reason, as I understand it, that these Houthi rebels are suddenly more popular with local groups than they were Mm -hmm. is because of the Israel-Gaza war. That their rationale, at least, for suddenly attacking all of these ships Mm. was that they were singling out Israel-bound or Mm Israel-connected container ships for attack. And it was their movement in solidarity with the Palestinians, which suddenly flips them from being just a terrorist group or a gang of thugs into being some kind of resistance fighters, freedom fighters that are much harder for local Arab neighbours to squash. Absolutely. And they'll also, by playing that role, get support in the West. 
from those who see this primarily as a sort of, you know, through imperial lens. So this is a, you know... Well, Jeremy Corbyn is already talking out, speaking very vociferously against these strikes into Yemen. Absolutely, so, as are Irish MEPs and, and others, and they'll be, they'll be supporting the US, I'm sure, uh, from, those on, from those on the left who are critical of Israel's response. Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting moment because the Houthis are not attacking Chinese or Russian ships that are going through through this strait. They are attacking only those connected to Israel or those countries that support Israel, which are, of course, the West. So that might be the Chinese response for why they're not getting involved, where it doesn't affect us. We're, we're managing to get through this part of the world easily enough. And so that, it's almost part of this new sort of Western versus anti-Western global struggle. Absolutely. This is just the latest front. Absolutely. I think you, it's very difficult to understand all of this properly unless you understand the struggle between uh, the United States and China for uh, global supremacy. And you're seeing that in so many different theatres now. You're obviously seeing it uh, in Ukraine um, and with the Russian invasion. You're seeing it in, in Israel and you're seeing, and we may start to see it in the South China Sea. Now, the, the ultimate conundrum for the Americans is where do you place your firepower? And it wanted to shift it from the Middle East into towards China, to face China, to protect Taiwan, which those some of those who are influential around Trump see as ultimately the key, the sort of the keystone to American uh, dominance in uh, in Asia. If you lose Taiwan, you then end up losing the Philippines. Uh, Japan can't be protected, and you have to withdraw back towards. Um, Hawaii. So you have to shift all of your um, your focus towards there. Well, they can't. They can't at the moment because, because of what you pointed out before. They are ultimately responsible for the defense of Ukraine. Ukraine would have fallen without American uh, support. And they are ultimately responsible for the defense of Israel. And we saw that after the October 7th attacks where the United States shifted, I think it was two, um, two aircraft carriers, I think, uh, to the Mediterranean as a warning to Iran um, and uh, Hezbollah not to invade. So the question is, can they do all of this at the same time and protect the uh, shipping routes through the Red Sea? Well, I guess we will find out the answer in coming weeks. But let's be a bit sceptical mm -hmm. for a moment, because I'm sure that we will have viewers who are pretty sceptical about this adventure as they were about previous ones. Mm -hmm and may think that it is morally indefensible to start bombing faraway countries. Let's, let's go through those arguments and take them seriously. The first question is the legality of this. Um, already Russia, unsurprisingly, has come out and said this is an illegal strike uh, against international law. It's not a UN peacekeeping force. It's just a random group of countries led by the US and the UK. It's therefore illegal. As I understand it, the legal basis for this was the UN resolution on the 9th of January uh, a few days ago, which asserted the right of UN member states to, quote, defend their vessels from attack, including those that undermine navigational rights and freedoms. And that was passed. Mm -hmm. And I think Russia abstained yes. rather than vetoed, which is quite significant. So it, it would, it would uh, even though they've subsequently claimed it was illegal, there's the sense that Russia is sort of tacitly allowing this to happen. They will um, presumably argue, as they did in Libya, that the West is abusing these um, 
uh, the, the 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 route through the UN and uh, Russia has has agreed something, and the West has then gone further than what is allowed, and that was clearly true in Libya. Um, I'm not a I'm not an expert on on the legal situation, but I think clearly that is going to be politically is going to be an argument that will certainly take hold. I mean, you're already seeing it in the in the UK, where this action has taken place without any parliamentary approval. So that will be politically is going to be very difficult to sustain this without some form of political support being granted for it. It's amazing how similar it is mm. in that sense to previous military strikes. The, the UN resolution that doesn't actually explicitly allow it, but is used as legal cover. Mm-hmm. The group of nations who kind of club together led by the US and the UK with a few smaller nations that are probably not contributing that much but are used to make it look like a larger coalition. The fights over whether parliament should be involved, the Liberal Democrats here in the UK are already complaining that there hasn't been a parliamentary vote as there should be if we go to war. Um, and it shows the, the, the fragility and maybe the inadequacy of those big supranational institutions, mm-hmm. like most importantly the UN. It's just it's not really doing anything in no. this, is it? it? It almost might as well not be there. Well, exactly. I mean, you you just wonder whether we should just talk honestly and say that the reason, I, mean, I think there is a line in this, actually, uh, when the US talk about this, that it's about delays to uh, shipping going through here, which are de- delays to people getting their goods. So it was almost like, you know, your Amazon delivery not arriving on time is a justification for uh, for uh, military strikes, which sounds kind of ludicrous, but I mean, it is effectively that is we are we are uh, waging a kind of it's not a war, but a small scale in, intervention against somebody because they are are um, affecting our commercial interests. This is this is very different, and it's it's hard to see um, how something like that, how the UN can fit into that very basic kind of understanding of the world. And groups like this, we don't have someone from the Houthis to interview because that's not going to happen. I mean, these, these are very far away, very rough, frankly, quite scary groups of people. Um, you know, we know very little about them. That's the reality, isn't it? It's, it's a very disorderly situation. We know that the group motto yes i was going uh, to say of, of what the, we know is not good <laughs> of the houthis um the official name is ansar allah supporters of god movement and their motto is death to america death to israel curse the jews god is great <laughs> yes so that sort of uh, sums it up yeah i mean i wonder if we'll be added to that list death well, to that's Britain. the danger well, but I mean, it's presumably that is where we place ourselves at risk. So, I, so I think one of the the challenges that some of our viewers will think is why why us? Not just a moral question. Then there is the why are we in this position? Why are we exposing ourselves to this in particular? And then um, I guess there are questions of efficacy as well. Whereas if the Saudi Arabians spending, I think it was six billion dollars a month on the war in Yemen were unable to win. And let's, you know, let's be frank about it. Mohammed bin Salman is not going to have pursued that war less vigorously than we are. You know, I think he will be less So the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who had an enormous army behind him with the best equipment money can buy, he still didn't manage. He didn't win. And I think he would be less concerned about civilian casualties than, uh, than we will be. And he didn't manage to win. 
So are we willing to pay $6 billion uh, a month to sustain this war? And for how long? And is there any sense that we can actually win this? And is this asymmetry that I talked about going to be a real problem for us? Because again, look at the aims here of what we're trying to achieve. They're trying to sow chaos to win international support for themselves, to undermine Israel's position and to disrupt the West in the process. Obviously, Iran sits behind this and benefits from all of that as well. Uh, And what are we trying to achieve? We're trying to ensure uh, order. Now, that is a very expensive thing to try and do. And and ensuring order doesn't come through development spending and state building and all the rest. It's ultimately through the barrel of a gun. And it's the American gun that we've been relied upon, reliant upon for so long. But now, can they do all of that? I think that's that's the real fundamental question. And some people might say it's not just order that we are trying to insist on. It's a particular world order. Absolutely, with yeah. With the US at the head. And so Russia and China and Iran are not incentivized to keep that world order in place. They want to disrupt it. They want moves towards chaos. And there are increasing numbers of countries who are on that side of things, who say, yeah, we'll take a period of chaos to dethrone the US and to shuffle things about. Mm. So I guess in hope of a a new settlement that will favour them better. Absolutely. But I mean, China is the interesting question then in this particular crisis, because it benefits enormously from freedom of navigation, freedom of the seas. This is its principal trade route into the West. Does it really want a period of disorder in this part of the world? I don't think so. There was a quote speaking of this scepticism about whether it will actually work from someone called Adam Clements, a former US Army attaché to Yemen. Um, This was in the news today. He said he is, quote, fairly pessimistic the strikes will have the intended effect of deterring further attacks. The, The Houthis have accumulated years of experience in hiding their supplies and mitigating risks. And in that sense, it reminds a little bit of the Israeli campaign in Gaza. Mm -hmm. It's another grand objective. We're going to destroy Hamas or we're going to destroy the Houthi leadership. We are going to degrade their ability to attack us. And yet, as you say, this is a movement supported by lots of people, Mm -hmm. which is only amplified and fueled by attacks from America and the UK Mm -hmm. and Israel in that case. And their munitions are homemade explosives or they're cheap to produce drones that many different countries can provide them with. You've got to be a bit pessimistic if you're reasonable that that this is going to be any easier to achieve than what Israel is trying to do in Gaza. Or what we tried to do in Afghanistan, where you you had a, a similar situation, you had enormous military capabilities, enormous numbers of troops, and you had a, you know, an army opposing you that were using very cheap weapons uh, but had enough support in the country to eventually be able to win if they if they lasted longer than you and clearly the houthis probably think that they will outlast uh, the west in their control of of that part of the world i mean it does remind me they're uh, going back all the way to 1967 uh, just before Britain pulled all of its forces out from, announced all of its forces would be leaving east of Suez, um, and it, we wouldn't return until under David Cameron years later, that we had this uh, base in Aden, and we had to leave after four years of sustained 
uh, guerrilla warfare against us. We didn't want to leave. It was the policy of the Wilson government and all the British establishment to protect that base because it was a, a very important part, as we've discussed, of our, our commercial interests. But we were ran out after four years of guerrilla campaigning from the local population, and we left with a tail between our legs and came home. So we've been here so it's before. It's not the first time we've seen it. It's this, not the first time we've seen it. And this challenge. It, yeah, I mean, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't bet against this going wrong. Final thought. You mentioned David Cameron. Mm -hmm. The cynic in me is a little bit anxious about the coincidence of timing where David Cameron, who is notoriously uh, enthusiastic about uh, military strikes in Arab countries with virtuous ends that ultimately go wrong, mm -hmm. has been out of government for a number of years, suddenly comes back as foreign secretary, and then bingo, here we are announcing military strikes again. Do you think that's just a coincidence? Um, it's not just a coincidence in that he has played, he's clearly played a, a very prominent role since he's come back as foreign secretary, allowing Sunak to concentrate more on, on domestic policy. My understanding is that still foreign policy is ultimately uh, controlled from, from number 10. Uh, but he is uh, supremely confident in his own judgment, I think we could say. Uh, and he may have been shaped by his experiences, or he almost certainly was. He wants to repair his reputation that was damaged principally, I think, now in uh, Libya, which was a, a total disaster, where it was a British and French-led operation that ultimately required American support, hand-holding. And Obama felt very bruised about this. They felt misled by uh, Cameron and Sarkozy. And actually, if you look at the map again, um, that intervention in Libya did more than anything to, dis to um, disrupt uh, North African uh, stability. Uh, and then the second one, of course, is Syria in 2013 and the vote to join the airstrikes uh, to enforce President Obama's red line that never got enforced. Now, the vote in the House of Commons that went against the strikes, that was the cause of, of, of the domino, that was the start of the domino effect that led to Obama himself offering Congress a vote. So I don't think it's a coincidence that we have not put this to a vote in the House of Commons. I think that is something that the government, the sort of the, 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 the power of the, of the government, they want to wrestle back from Parliament because they, in their uh, estimation, it mm. was a disaster to give that to MPs. And at the very least, you can see in this a wrestling between different views of how the world should be run. Mm -hmm. And there is a more old-fashioned traditional view, mm -hmm. which is that the US and the UK should be running things. And if there are sort of disobedient nations doing things, they need to be policed. And Cameron is ultimately still from that generation. So the fact that he has returned as foreign secretary is embodiment of that struggle, isn't it? Absolutely. But what is it's very difficult for the West this because you effectively have a terrorist campaign against commercial shipping. What do you do about that? Do you just allow it to happen? And the Chinese are, are it's an easier conundrum for them because their ships aren't being attacked. So it's it's very difficult. I think even a new generation uh, prime minister would would struggle with this. But there are clearly other options and. I think the great risk is that we don't have the attention span, just like in Libya and just like in Syria, um, to actually see this through. And ultimately, do we have the money 
to to pay for such a sustained war in this part of the world or do we are we going to have to share the burden and that might mean bringing much bigger coalition including those from outside the west and that would be a real indication of the declining power of the west and the rise of others thanks tom thank you that was tom mctague unheard's political editor talking through with me the world's newest war or perhaps we should say the newest front in the longer war that has officially started in Yemen this morning. Thanks for tuning in. This was Unheard.